So we have reached the home stretch in our study through 1 John. Tonight is our eighth study, and next week is our ninth and our last study through the book of 1 John. And as I said last time, we could have probably spent 90 studies going through 1 John. So much good stuff in here. Uh, And tonight's going to be no exception. There's a lot of good instruction and theology and history and uh, funny little issues to work through that uh, in just in this passage alone, which is going to be the first 12 verses of chapter 5, I think it's been really beneficial, hopefully for you, as it has been for me. And as I've said, this isn't really the theme of 1 John, but as I've gone through it, this has been the thing that stood out to me the most, is John enumerating the differences between those who have been born of God and those who have not, the world, or he gives them a couple different names, but tonight he's going to call the world. And he's emphasized the differences of doctrine, of morality, of love especially, and he's charged us as readers to maintain that distinction, right? He's saying, this is them, this is you, this is how you ought to be. And most of the last few weeks have been about love, which makes sense, it's First John, the love of God for us, how we ought to love God, the love we ought to have for one another. Tonight he's going to continue that thought, but he's going to focus more on faith and how faith drives us to show love uh, rather than on love itself. And he's going to teach us that because we are children of God, because we have been born by faith, that we have great victory over the world. And this goes along with our responsibility to love one another. So he's going to talk about the blessings of being children of God and tie that to the responsibility that comes with being a child of God. And we're also going to see him defend, because he hangs everything on faith, which he should, he's going to defend how we know what we believe, not just in the testimony of the Bible, but of God himself. So as the whole book has been, tonight is an affirmation of who we are as children of God, and it's meant to build up your faith and your confidence so that you can have love and victory in your life. So as I said, we're going to do the first 12 verses of chapter 5. Next week, we will finish chapter 5 and the whole book. Let me go ahead and start out with verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So chapter 5 Remember, he's been picking up on this theme of brotherhood and love that we love one another because we are all born of God. If we've all been born of the same father, remember John 3, 3, you must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, then we are not only sons and daughters of God, but we are brothers and sisters to one another. We are true children of God, heirs of God. And so in chapter 5, he comes in and says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And that, that phrase there, been born, he's using the, the word begotten, and he uses it three times in this sentence. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been begotten of God, and everyone who loves the one who begets loves whoever has been begotten by him. So he's hammering that word home of being begotten. He's like, you can't say I've been born of my father, but I hate my father's other kids, right? We talked about Cain and Abel a few weeks ago, remember? So th- this is his point, but he's going to move on past the idea of of just loving each other, Uh, he's going to say that the entry to that new life, so how do you know you've been born of God? You know by your faith. 
When you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's a really great little phrase there because it's not just Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, the human from Nazareth in Galilee, is the Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, preexistent and incarnate in the world. We believe that that Savior, that divine Savior, was Jesus of Nazareth. If you believe that, he says, you have been born of God. And that being born of God, that, that implication is that God is your father, that you have been brought into that family. Romans chapter 8, 14 through 17 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we're going to see tonight, and we've seen before, that being led by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God leads us to confession in Christ. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we've been born of the Spirit of God. And if we love the Father, then we will love those who have been born of him. We love our brothers and sisters, at least we should. We love our countrymen. We love those who share uh, a, a heritage and a history with us. America is a unique place because we've come from all over, but most countries, they share a common ancestry and that ties them together. We ought to have love with each other greater than people have love for their own families. Why? Because your union with one another is stronger under the new covenant than it ever was under the old covenant or any time previously. Because we are closer to one another in Christ, we are fellow heirs with Christ in the same spirit. Because we are closer, our responsibility to love one another is proportionately greater, right? You have a responsibility to love your brothers and sisters. That's what families do. We love each other. Why? Because you're family. That means something. It's important. Now, we are family of one another, but it's on an even deeper level than blood. It's the level of the spirit. So your responsibility to love each other is proportionately greater. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, the prophet wrote, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Again, when Malachi is writing those words, he's speaking of an ethnic relationship between the children of Israel. And he's saying, look, guys, we're all, we're all one blood, one family, one God. Shouldn't we love each other? Why are we being faithless? Well, our relationship to one another has an even deeper root than that with even greater responsibility. We are now children of God. You know, when you're born into privilege, it bears certain responsibilities. When you are born into a, a position of authority, like a prince or a princess, there's responsibilities that come along with that. We have duties. And now, as children of the king of the universe, we have duties as the king. And what are they? He says, by this we know that we love the children when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Your responsibility as a child of the king is to keep his commandments. What are those? These are the commandments of Jesus Christ, especially the commandment to love one another. And this is a tricky thing sometimes when we think, wait a minute, I thought I was just saved. Now I've got stuff that I've got to do. And we start to look at it, as he says at the end of verse 3, as a burden to keep the commandments of God. But he's saying, no, 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 you've got it backwards. In 1936, some of you guys might know this history. 1936, so this is after World War I, the buildup to World War II. Hitler is on the move. 
In England, King Edward VIII abdicated the throne to his brother. He, was, he had been crowned king. He abdicated and decided he didn't want to be king anymore because there was a woman, an American woman, who was twice divorced. He was living in an adulterous relationship with her. He kind of had the rich playboy thing going on, right? And then when his father died, he was thrust into the position of being king. He didn't want it. There was a lot of pressure on him. You've got to break off your relationship with this woman, right? She's, she's not your wife. You know, she's been divorced twice. She's done, everybody kind of around him was saying, she's not good for you, bro. Like, if you read all the, all the history around it, it's really funny. Because, like, she's just taking your money. She's just taking your stuff. She's a gold digger. But he didn't care. He felt that the responsibility upon him to lead his nation was not worth the sacrifice. So he abdicated the throne, gave up his privilege so that he could marry this woman. Now, I look at that, and that sounds really schmaltzy and romantic in a way. Although, remember, this was not... The, the princess and the frog here. This was an adulterous relationship that these two not very great people were engaged in. But I look at that and I, I think it, it might be hard to be a king, but I, I don't feel that bad for you. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's just so tough. The responsibilities, you have no idea. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to give it a try though. I, I don't think it's such a bad thing. Okay. It's like, but I've got to do this and I can't marry whoever I want. And I can't, I can't, you know, drink whatever I want and go wherever I want or do whatever I say. And it's like, that sounds really rough, but like you're the king, pal. Those commandments are not burdensome as you seem to think that they are. So I, I look at that as an example here where he had a, a relationship, a sinful relationship that he wanted to be in. And despite the fact that the entire world was at his feet, he rejected all of that. And now he's a, he's a footnote in history. He's a nobody. You didn't know who he was until I brought him up five minutes ago. <laughs> You're going to forget about him in a little bit. He saw that the commandments were burdensome upon his life. And that's a common temptation, you know. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God gives us reasonable commandments, reasonable responsibilities that go along with all of his blessings. And we start to think that he's keeping something from us. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They had everything. <laughs> they had everything they could ever need. And God said, go, this is the world I have made for you. Go live in it. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. And then the next scene in the story, where are Adam and Eve? <laughs> They're sitting under the tree. Well, what is it about this tree? Why not this one? The whole world is at our feet, but we can't have this. And that's how we are, right? A little kid doesn't care if somebody's playing with his toy until he realizes that it's no longer his property if somebody else has it. Now he cares. Now he wants it but they have it and I can't. And the minute you can't have something, you want it really bad. You know that feeling, right? You guys are college age. You know, you're trying to make decisions about who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to school, what you're going to study, what your career is going to be, where you're going to live. Saying no to something, or I should say saying yes to something is saying no to everything else. And that's tough. It's tough for us to think that there are certain possibilities that are not available to us anymore. It kind of freak you out a little bit if you let it. And this was the temptation that Satan came in. He's saying, God is keeping something from you. That's the reason he put this responsibility, this commandment upon you. It's because he's keeping something from you. Yes, you get to be king of the whole world, <laughs> of the biggest empire the world has ever seen. Yes, you have the opportunity to lead your people. Yes, you have the opportunity to step up into the role that you've been groomed for your whole life. But you're going to have to give up something that's not really good for you anyway. But that one thing that he couldn't have was enough to push him away. And this is what the devil does to us. Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30, Jesus wrote this, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The commandments of God are not burdensome. The yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. Yes, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to love other people, to walk righteously, to believe the Lord's word. But aren't those things for your good anyway? So you're saying that there's certain things that I can't do if I'm going to be a Christian? Yes, that's exactly it. Well, I don't know about this anymore. Okay, but it's salvation of your soul. You get to be a co-heir with Christ. Yeah, but I, I really don't like the idea of somebody else telling me how to live my life. Okay, then abdicate. There's, there's plenty of other people who want to be king after you. Plenty of people who would clamor to tear down the door of salvation if they had half a chance at it. And the thing is, aren't the things that God commands us for our good anyway? You know, there's a reason why the Lord tells us to not walk in adultery or to not walk in lust or to not walk in anger. It always cracks me up when, you know, some groundbreaking study from some prestigious university comes out about, it turns out that forgiveness is the key to happiness. And that if you forgive people, there's so much more peace in your life. It's like, what, you needed a study and millions of dollars to tell you that? God told you to do that. You couldn't just accept it from God, though. You had to go and, and, you know, get a bunch of eggheads in university to prove the value of forgiveness to you. The Lord's commandments are for our good. Even in the children of Israel, in the book of Leviticus, when they were wandering in the wilderness and God told them, don't eat pork, don't eat bats, don't eat bugs. What, you're saying I can't eat bugs now? How dare you tell me what to do and not to do? It's like, it's going to get you sick. Yeah, but I don't know if I, I need all this responsibility and all these rules. It's like, yeah, but everybody else eating the bug stew, everybody else cooking the, the pork is getting sick and dying. Oh, so you're saying that we have to take our waste and put it outside the camp? All these restrictions and rules. It's, it's for your good. That's why I'm telling you to do that. God is good and he tells us to do the right things. These are not burdensome commandments. This is John's point. He's like, yes, if we've been born of God, we have to love each other. But that's not like some some awful, uh, tyrannical rule put down on your life. You have the privilege and responsibility to love those who are around you. Because you have been born again of God, you have a responsibility to love each other like you love your brothers and sisters. Does that put limitations on your life? Yeah, it does. But you know what? It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And he's going to explain why in verse 4, down into verse 5. His commandments are not burdensome for... Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he makes that point that I was just saying there. Whatever the weight of responsibility upon you as a child of God, it's worth it because you have victory over the world. Now remember for John here, you can use the world in two different senses. In John 3, 16, it says that God so loved the world. There he's talking about the world as a, as a place full of lost sinners who need forgiveness. Most of the time in 1 John and most places in the Bible, it's referring to the present world order under the influence of Satan in rebellion against God. That's probably pretty obvious to you, but it is good to make sure that you, you recognize it. He's saying that we who are born of God overcome the world. Throughout this book, he's been doing this over and over again. He urges you to separate yourselves and strive to overcome worldly influence. Remember chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. And he tells us here in verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone. All those who submit to faith in Jesus Christ. And we say, well, how do we overcome the world? How is that possible? Well, he tells us through our faith. This is the victory. The victory is the word Nike. That's where the, the sports brand comes from, in case you didn't know that. Overcome, victory. Victory is the Greek word Nike. This is our victory, our faith. This goes along with Revelation 12, verse 11. It says, they have conquered him. So the saints who, who are in heaven with the Lord, they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The faith that you put in Jesus Christ, the word of your testimony is victory over the world. What is it about faith in Christ that leads to overcoming the world? Because this is the only way out of the world as a system. This is your escape. We make this point when we go to Nepal a lot. This is a big evangelistic point that they believe that they are in a constant cycle of, of karma and reincarnation, that what you do in this life balances out either to good or bad. And if it's good, you're reborn as something better. If it's bad, you're reborn as something worse. And this cycle goes on through all of eternity until eventually maybe you break out of this cycle in what's called nirvana and you become one with the universe and all that. That's a really oppressive thing. You talk about oppressive religion, that's oppression. It's not just do this or, you know, you're going to die. It's do this and you're going to die and have to come back and do it all over again, except it'll be worse this time, right? And we teach them that Jesus is the way out of the cycle of reincarnation. We're not admitting that it's real, but you understand how this can speak to them. You are not bound to your karma. You're not bound to the things you've done. You don't have to be reborn. You can be born to glory because of Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him. And that is life-changing for these people. To hear that they don't have to get stuck in this cycle over and over again, but the Lord Jesus provides a way out. And it's the same thing for us here. There's only one way out of the meaningless, sinful, predetermined destiny of the world, and that's the gospel. Now, we resent that. Like, oh, you're saying that I'm, I'm bound? I'm in, I'm in slavery? I'm, in, I'm stuck in a cycle? No, I'm not. Well, there were some people that said the same thing to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 30 through 36. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who can complain about that? <laughs> the truth will set you free. They could. Why? Because being set free implies that you are what? A slave, and you need to be set free. They didn't like being told that they need to be set free. Doesn't that sound familiar? They said, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever. The, uh, sorry, the son, I almost said the sin. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You're not free if you're living in sin. You're not. You might think that you've got it all under control. You do whatever you want. Nobody tells you how to live. Maybe you're not living that way, but you think about it. And in, in you know, quiet moments, you fantasize, man, wouldn't it be great just to do whatever I wanted to do? I'd be so free. No, you wouldn't. You'd be stuck. People who do whatever they want are miserable people. That's just a fact. 
I have good friends. I have good testimonies. And there are people in the Bible who do whatever they want, gratify themselves, but they're stuck. They're stuck serving themselves. You're bound to do what the rest of the world does. And the funny thing is, even people who strive to be righteous, like they want to, that's what, I'm going to be free to do right because it's right and not because anybody tells me to do it. That sentence doesn't make any sense, first of all. But moving past that, I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Eventually, you're going to start getting frustrated with people because they're not all lining up to the way the world ought to be. And you get angry at them. And so you get bitter and you get prideful. And you become a tyrant in your own life, right? You want to force people to conform. Or you just say, who cares? I'm going to do whatever I want. And you throw it off. And you're stuck living just like everybody else. But in Jesus, you receive freedom. And the thing is, it's not just real freedom. It it is absolutely real spiritual freedom. But there's like an everyday life freedom that comes along with that too. Because we have freedom from our past, which means we have forgiveness of sins. Okay? You do not stand before God in judgment anymore. That's awesome. That's when, like, as he said in the last chapter, that perfect love casts out fear. And that also affects your, your daily life, too. Not just your spiritual state, but your mental state. Knowing that you're not under judgment every time you sin anymore, but you've been forgiven. He gives you freedom in the present. The Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates your soul. There is an actual spiritual change that takes place in your heart when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, where the Spirit sets you free to do the things that you know you ought to do. Freedom in the present. Because you're set free from the past, you can live freely in the present without worrying about it. And we have freedom in the future. We have a hope of heaven. We believe that we're going to spend eternity with God. That's awesome. And you know what else? On a a mental level too, knowing that you've got a reward awaiting you pushes you forward to keep on trying and to keep on doing better and to not let yourself get bogged down. That's the freedom that Jesus brings. So what is it really that you have to submit yourself to the Lord? That's your way of escape. That's your victory. That's your Nike, man. That's how you get out is submission to the Lord. He says, listen, I'm going to come in, I'm going to change your life, and I'm going to redirect it. Okay, if you knew that was true, you wouldn't say, oh, what's the catch? You'd say, just tell me what to do, bro. Just tell me what I got to do. That's all I want to hear. Okay, I'll do that. I got to love people. I'm going to start loving people. But we can kind of get all snobby about it and say, oh, so there's strings attached. No, there's not strings attached. This is how you are meant to live. And God's like, I'm going to give you freedom and empower you to do the right things. That's our victory. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It comes back to that confession of the gospel. That when we confess Jesus Christ, when you believe that your sin has been paid for on the cross, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you now, and that there is an eternal home awaiting you, that's victory over the world. The world has nothing on you anymore. They can't threaten you with anything. They can't push you to do something that you shouldn't do, because you belong to God now. Your life has meaning, and not some meaning that you make for yourself. That's that's nothing. Real purpose and meaning that God gives you. That confession. That's why we say, I've been born of God. I'm a prince. I'm a princess of the king. So I don't mind the responsibility to love people. You know why? Because I've been set free from the cycle of death in the world. Right? You read through the genealogies in Genesis. So-and-so was born and had sons and daughters and died. Then so-and-so was born and had sons and daughters and died. So-and-so was born, had sons and daughters, and died. We're set free from that to eternal life in Christ Jesus. So when he says love each other because you've been born of God, you're like, no problem. I can take that. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. 
Now he's going to continue to discuss in verse 6 the testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ, the thing in which we have placed our faith. So it's not just about having faith. It's about having faith in something, which in this case is Jesus Christ, the gospel. The thing is, your faith is only as good as the thing in which you place it. So do we know that what we believe about Jesus Christ is true? That's what he's going to discuss in this section. And this is one of the most interesting yet confusing portions probably of the whole New Testament. Uh, He's going to describe Jesus as having a three-part testimony here. Um, and it's kind of difficult to break that down, but let's read through uh, verses 6 through 8 here. Remember, he, he's saying we've been born again. That's why we have to love each other, and we're born again by putting our faith in Jesus, which sets us free. And here's how we know that what we believe is true. Verse 6, this is he, the Son of God, Jesus, that he just referred to. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Okay, so the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Uh, The passage is not 100% clear about what these mean. And you just read it. There's no special tricks here. You read that. It's like, I'm not quite sure what that says. So we're going to try and figure it out. We're going to piece through it a little bit. but let's, let's go ahead and dive in, because it is an important thing. The closest cross-reference we have to this is, comes from John 3, verse 5, when Jesus told Nicodemus that to be born again meant to be born of the water and the Spirit. Well, we pretty much know what the Spirit is. What is the water? And, and water is going to be the tricky one here in this passage as well, knowing exactly what John meant when he said to be born of water. Um, so let's, let's work through this. This is he who came by water and blood. So whatever our definitions of water and blood are, they have to do with Jesus' coming. He came by water and by blood. And he says, not by water only, but by water and the blood. So the implication there is that anybody could come by water, but Jesus came by water and blood. So blood seems to be the greater one. Water seems to be the lesser. I see two possibilities here. Uh, I'm, I think I know which one I prefer, but I'm not going to fight with anybody about it. Um, so let's, let's look at this. Really, it comes down to your definition of water. Is water referring to physical birth or is water referring to baptism? Those are your two questions. So the first one would be Jesus coming by the water and the blood meant Jesus came for a physical birth and a physical death. So he was born as an actual human being and he died on the cross for our sins. Okay, so this is referring to a literal coming. Both of those things are true. However you slice this passage, Jesus did come in the flesh, and he did die in the flesh. So that's if we believe that water refers to physical birth. Okay, we refer to a woman's water breaking, for example. You know what I mean when I say that. The second option is that water is referring to baptism. So this would be Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. This is the more popular view, as far as I could read, that when it says Jesus came in his baptism in solidarity with men, and then he came in his crucifixion, salvation for those who believe. Both of those things are true too. Jesus did baptize, was baptized in solidarity with humanity. He didn't need to be baptized, but he did. And then he was crucified. He did die on the cross. So I want you to see that You're not giving up some big doctrinal point or some important secret code here by taking it one way or the other. Does everybody understand that? I think that the first idea is probably the best one. I think this is referring to Jesus' physical birth and his death on the cross. 
uh, I think it stretches the text less because I'm not sure what it would mean by Jesus coming by water, meaning his baptism. He came by his baptism. I'm not quite sure how that, what that would mean, although I'm pretty sure what it means when you say Jesus came born of woman. I also think that goes along with John 3, 5, right? Jesus is talking about rebirth, being born of the water and of the spirit, although some people believe that that refers to baptism as well. Um, so that's how I'm going to look at it here. Either way works just fine. But I think when he says Jesus who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and the blood, you could read it like this. Jesus Christ who came not born as a human only, but also born as a human and died for our sins. The coming of Jesus Christ was characterized by the incarnation and the crucifixion. And I think you could wrap up, of course, the resurrection in that as well. So little fun thing, little Bible study back there. You can take your time to read it on your own. The third aspect of it is easy. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Okay? So the first two have to do with how Jesus came. Although the Holy Spirit certainly has to do with how Jesus came. But it talks about the Spirit specifically as the testifier. That he was the one who testifies that Jesus came. And this, according to John 15, 26, is a primary duty of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So one of the Spirit's primary duties in the world is to testify about Jesus. So you have now, from verse uh, 6 here, this tripartite testimony. The water, which I would see as his physical life. The blood, his death on the cross or the gospel. And the spirit, that God's presence is in him and in us, testifying of it. So why is he taking the time to talk about three different uh, aspects of the testimony of Jesus? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and in chapter 19, verse 15, the Bible established the principle of two or three witnesses. Have you heard that before? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. The point of this from a legal standpoint was one person can't come and condemn somebody and say they deserve to die. So you need two or three witnesses. The idea is you need at least two, preferably three, to make sure that it's fair. Also part of this, and this is a parenthesis, but part of the fact was if you were going to come and denounce somebody and testify against them that they deserve death, you had to be the first one to uh, throw the stone to, to execute them. You were involved in the process. It was, it was meant to make it fair, to make it just, that one person couldn't come in and be paid just to, to testify against somebody, but you needed multiple witnesses. And the Bible takes this principle and it applies it in multiple different ways. It's in Matthew 18, 16, when it talks about spiritual discipline. It's in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, when Paul's talking about uh, his status as an apostle. 1 Timothy 5, 19 uses it. And this is why John's like, look, you got two or three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit testifying of Jesus. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. The objective reality, the water and the blood, combined with the active work of the Holy Spirit that forms the testimony about which we believe. We believe this testimony that Jesus came, that he died, and that there is a present work going on right now, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And you can trust that testimony because as he says, the spirit is the spirit of truth and cannot lie. And again, this is why John's writing this passage. It's confidence. We can have confidence in what Jesus has done. Now, when you get to verse 7, we are going to return to the idea of God being the truth. When you get to verse 7, we've got a, an external issue to deal with here. How many of you guys have a King James or a New King James Bible open right now? Okay. 
So the King James or the New King James have a longer version of chapter 5, verse 7. This is what we call textual criticism. We've talked about this before. Obviously, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek. And we know that the Bible that we have comes from compiling and comparing thousands and thousands of copies and manuscripts of the Greek text. That's how we come to the base that is then translated. Now, in the best versions, the best and newest versions of the New Testament, we do not have the longer version of verse 7. And this is what it says in chapter 5, verse 7, with the longer ending, okay? For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's a pretty slam dunk verse for the Trinity, isn't it? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's a little too good. <laughs> uh, that was not in the original text. Now listen, I affirm without question the truth of that. Do I believe that there are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that these three are one? Absolutely. Yes, I do. We are Trinitarian Christians. We are Orthodox evangelical believers. We're not saying that this doesn't, the truth is not true. But this sentence does not belong in this letter. Are you with me on that? Um, it does not belong to any of the older or oldest copies. There are only eight Greek manuscripts that include that phrase about the Trinity there. Only eight. The earliest, there's one of them from the 10th century. So that's 900s AD. That is pretty far removed from the actual writing of this letter, right? 900 years later. The other seven are from either the 16th, 17th, or 18th centuries. That's way too late. <laughs> okay, that's post-Reformation, okay? Also, it is in no translated version of the New Testament, like Syriac or Latin or anything like that. And there are no church fathers that quote from it. It is found in a few obscure quotations, but nothing of any kind of quality. What is believed is that maybe the guy that was translating it wrote almost like a study Bible note in the corner. Like, and hey, just like there's three, three that testify of Jesus, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's kind of like the Trinity here. And at some point, it was roped into the text itself. Uh, helpful commentary, not original to the passage. Now, this makes us uncomfortable when you say that this which the church read in it for a long time, did not belong here. That's a really, really heavy thing to say. And 99 times out of 100, I feel like we should be willing to wait to be sure. But if there is a place in the Bible where we can be sure that it does not belong, this is it. Inspiration belongs to the autographs of the Bible. Remember that. The autograph was the original thing that was written. The actual piece of paper on which John scratched his pen, that was inspired of God. Any changes that came after are aberrations and deviations. That makes sense, right? We do not have the autographs. We have our copies. So we have to go through the process of examining and comparing these copies. And we cannot allow, this is the biggest challenge to textual criticism. You cannot allow your favorite passages and your favorite quotes to get in the way of your Bible study. That's tough. When you're like, oh, this is my favorite Bible verse. This is my favorite memory verse. I have it cross-stitched and it's hanging from my, you know, my wall. Or I got it tattooed on my leg or something like that. Sorry, it's the Bible. <laughs> we have to let the Bible speak for itself. And we need to keep in mind too, we do not lose anything by losing this reference. Oh, now the Trinity is not in the Bible. It absolutely is still in the Bible. He's been describing the Holy Spirit as separate from God the Father and God and Jesus Christ. He's been using personal pronouns. He's been calling him God. It's all there. There's just not a clean laid out statement of it like there 
was in our older Bibles that should not have been there at the end of verse 7. So, a uh, little interesting note for you guys. Most of the, actually all of the new, newer translations don't include it. That's good. Um, but in case you're, you're ever reading an older version, you're like, wait a minute, I don't remember this verse. So, there you go. Verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. So what do we gain from these verses? That Jesus, by his life, his death, and the Holy Spirit has been testified to as the Christ come from God. Because remember, our status as children of God and our responsibility to love each other is based on the fact that Jesus' Christ's testimony is true. So how do I know that it's true? He's like, look, you've got the, his life, his death, and the Holy Spirit testifying to who he is. That's pretty cool. So then you move into verse 9, and he's going to pick up on how he said earlier that the Spirit is the truth. Because what that whole point was is that God is the one testifying of Jesus, not men. So let's read verses 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So, John says, I just provided two or three witnesses. And if you believe the two or three witness testimony of men, how much more should you believe the testimony of God? He's making it clear that when you trust in Jesus, you're not just trusting in men or some inferior thing. God himself has testified to his son. The life of Jesus is God's testimony. There was the previous testimony of his life and his death, and there's the ongoing testimony of the Holy Spirit. Even if you read through the Gospels, there are multiple times where God verbally affirmed Jesus as the Son of God. Luke chapter 2, you know this, when the angels showed up to sing to the shepherds, right? The unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, right? Jesus has been born. At his baptism, Matthew 3 and elsewhere, where Jesus came up out of the water and God's voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the temple in John chapter 12, where Jesus said, Lord, glorify your name. And God shakes the skies and says, I have glorified it and will continue to glorify it. And Jesus says, that voice was for you so that you know who I really am. And I think the most important one is the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses one through eight. I'm gonna read the whole story. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, that's a big deal, especially for these Jewish boys. And so Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We're going to set up a retreat center up here. And, uh, well, you know, a place for Elijah, a place for you, and a place for Moses, you know, the three greatest men who ever lived. The, the thing you need to catch there is he's placing Jesus on level, on par with Moses and Elijah. Well, God wants to figure, fix that. So he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, Peter. <laughs> when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The whole point of that 
is to glorify Jesus and say, hey, Jesus is the one who has been testified to by God. He is above Moses. He is above Elijah. God testified to his son and continues to testify through his son. This is why unbelief is such a big thing. Well, you're saying if I don't agree with you, then I'm going to go to hell. It's not about agreeing with me. I don't care if you agree with me. I don't care if, you know, I agree with you either, frankly. What I do care about is if God has spoken, that's a big deal. This is what, you know, I, I say and people will like, I can tell when you teach that you really believe that. I'm like, well, I could hope so. But, but what I always say is like, look, if this stuff is real, then nothing else matters, man. If this is true, nothing is more important than this. And this is what John says here. Who are you to reject the testimony of God? You, re- you accept the testimony of men, but you're going to reject the testimony of God? This is why he says in ver- uh, sorry, verse 10, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. To reject the gospel is to say that God has not really made a way of salvation. It's to call God a liar which really was the original sin, wasn't it? Back to the Garden of Eden. Has God really said, well, he said that if we eat that, we'll die. You won't die, Eve. Has God really said that there's only one way to salvation, that's through Jesus Christ? Well, he said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. You can get to the Father any way you want. We're right back to that. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. He's like, God is so truthful that every truthful person who ever lived is a liar in comparison to God. Unbelief is is calling into question the character of God. That's a big deal. I could talk longer about that, but I really could get lost in it if I I let myself. (laughs) This is why you can't compromise on the gospel message, by the way. Not only in your belief, well, I believe most of these things, but I don't know about the rest of that. I'm sorry, who are you to sit in judgment upon God or the word of God? Well, some of it doesn't make sense to me. And God said it. The Bible says it. Therefore, I believe it. Well, that's just, that's an unacceptable way of thinking. You can't just accept it like that. Yes, I can. It's the word of God. If I disagree with it, then I think I got something to work out. If I have a difference of opinion with the Bible, I'm willing to admit that not only is God so much wiser than me, but all the other great, amazing people that have gone before me that have believed it might know something that I just don't. In your belief and in your proclamation. Well, if I proclaim the whole gospel, then people won't get saved. Okay. You are not commanded to go out and get people saved. You are called to go out and proclaim the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17 says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, right? We're always having that victory, overcoming the world. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we're, we're spreading the knowledge of God like it's, like it's incense. Imagine that, okay? We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, this is a fragrance from death to death. To another, the fragrance from life to life. Some people smell the gospel and it smells like death. Some people smell the gospel and it smells like life. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Why does he say that there? He's like, that's a pretty heavy thing, guys. We're spreading judgment around the world. We're calling people to the point of decision when we spread this gospel. He says, 
But why do we have to be this way, Paul? Why do you got to be like that? Why can't you just make it easier for people to accept it? Because he says in verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Right? We're not like hawking God's word. Oh, yeah, you want it? Yeah, I'll cut a deal with you. No, we are men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Paul is saying, I would not dare mess with this message because it's God's message, not mine. Well, people will reject it. Yes, they will. And this is not to downplay the importance of making converts, right? Paul said he strove earnestly for souls. Jesus said, go and make disciples. But numbers are not the goal. If you have proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully, you have been successful. Even if they said no, yes. Because now God is fully justified in judging that person. He extended to them his mercy, and now he is righteous to judge them. That's intense. That's heavy. That's why Paul says who is sufficient for these things, right? But we're not peddlers, guys. We're not hawking God's word. We're trying to cut a deal with some, like we're a rug salesman over in like, you know, Agrabah or something like that. Many will reject the gospel, but that is the way that it must be so that God may be glorified. But for us, because we have believed in God, we went back to that Garden of Eden and believed God and took him at his word. God has reset the game. And we can have ultimate confidence in Christ Jesus. Why? Because your faith is not in the testimony of men, but in the testimony of God himself. God has spoken to you. God is speaking to you right now by his Holy Spirit. Through the life, the death, and the outpouring of Christ's Holy Spirit, God is speaking to you. And when you put your faith in that, it's in something that can never fail because it's the voice of God. That's why we can be so confident, as John writes, that we are actually born again. In verse 11, wrapping it up, he says, this is the testimony. So what, okay, we've been talking about the testimony, John. What is the testimony again? Just kind of sum up for me. Here's the sum up. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You could write a little flip book on all the little short one-sentence uh, gospel messages in the New Testament. This is one of them. What is the gospel? God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, there's that separation, right? That distinction between the world and the church. And he's making it very simple at the end. What is the testimony, that three-part witness, that God has given you life through his son, Jesus Christ? You need both parts. It's not just God has given us life. It's not just that God has a son. It's the two of them together. If you have the son, you have life. If not, then not. VBS verse, man, Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus satisfied the requirements of God against us and has opened up the way of salvation through faith if we will repent and obey. There's nothing else you could have ever done to earn your salvation. It's a free gift. Remember Jesus took the child, says, we want to be part of your kingdom. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? He calls a little kid over and sets him in the midst. He says, you got to be like this kid right here. What are you talking about, Jesus? You need to have that kind of childlike faith and humility to trust that when I talk to you, I know what I'm talking about. It's a gift. They asked him in John 6, 28 through 29, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Okay, we want to we get right with God. We want to be holy, Jesus. What do we do? He answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The acceptance of that testimony is the gospel. That's how God saves you. If you trust and believe God and bring it back to, I think that God is telling the truth and I'm going to put my faith in what he has said, not my own works, God saves you in that moment. Jesus Christ, the one true son of God, begotten from eternity, and he alone has the rights of a son of God, right? There's no other, you know, demigod or, or pseudo-god out there that has the same status as Jesus. But because of God's great love, he has allowed you to share that life with Jesus, to become a son, to become an heir with him. So now we bring it back to the very beginning who cares what the cost is? Your responsibility that comes along with such great blessing to be brought into the presence of God, accepted as Jesus is accepted, to have life in you. And then the Lord says, let us love one another. (laughs) To say anything other than yes, Lord, is foolishness. And we can take joy in that because we know it's true. God's not a liar. So all this is real. So what, what should your life look like? What's the responsibility? What's the, what's the change that God wants to rot in you that you can shoulder that burden and keep going because it's not burdensome? Isn't that so hard living like that? No way, man. I get to spend eternity with God. I'm an heir of God. Do you get that? Man, so you're saying that you can't just like eat whenever you want or go wherever you want or talk to whoever you want? Man, that's got to be hard being a king. It's like, yeah, but a homeless person has those things. I doubt the homeless person would think twice about trading all that in. And, you know, bringing it back to that story about King Edward VIII, he was succeeded by King George VI. And he had the distinction to lead his people through the years of World War II to what is maybe the greatest victory that nation ever knew. He was perhaps not as equipped to be king, not as worthy to be king, but you know what set him apart from his brother? He was willing to shoulder the burden And that gained him the glory. That's what it was. The willingness to shoulder the burden. Because it's not really a burden, is it? I mean, can you think think if God had something like that planned for you to lead lead a nation in war against Hitler and you had the chance to do that and you said, no, I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. It's, It's a dishonorable thing to do. Instead, it's like, this is going to be tough. This is going to be the hardest thing I've ever had to do, and we will probably fail, but I'm going to step up and shoulder that burden anyway. That's what it means to follow Jesus, guys. To step up and receive the blessings of God along with the responsibilities that they entail so that we may be glorified along with Christ. So let's live out the commandments, guys. Adherence to the true faith. That way we're not going to walk in subjugation. We're not going to be slaves to our own impulses, but we're going to be victorious over the world because the price of victory in Christ is absolutely worth it.